Well, if you weren't here before, happy Father's Day to you guys. I hope that it has been a good one so far, and we are certainly, uh, we're certainly glad that you do what you do as dads, and uh, we just hope that you guys get a little time off this afternoon and maybe a, maybe a, maybe a special lunch or something uh, to appreciate that. You know, it's a funny thing about dads and about fathers is, is that so often dads are those guys that kind of just get overlooked in the, in the holidays of things. And they're okay with it, you know? They're like, that's all right. Because for most dads that I know are, are, are doing the things that they're doing not because they, they want somebody to say anything about it, but simply because they, they love their families, they care about those families, they want their needs to be provided, and they want them to be happy. And, and, uh, and so we just really appreciate everything that dads have been doing. Last week, we, we kind of paused in the middle of a sermon series to talk a little bit about marriage and about the, the important implications for marriage. And if you weren't here last week, we talked a little bit about how, how it seems like that there's, there's a, a kind of an attack against the idea of what family is. And I think that's because the devil knows far better than we do what's actually at stake. The, the devil realizes that, that this thing that we call family, that this thing that we call home, actually is, is a lot bigger symbol of, of spiritual things than we might realize. That, that God is illustrating to us his personness and his characteristics in the institutions that he's created here. A few weeks ago, we celebrated mothers and motherhood and on Mother's Day. And this morning, we're going to talk about fatherhood. And you know, if there's an item that's been attacked in our world today, and I don't mean to sound negative about this at all, but I, I really feel like that fatherhood is often kind of maligned. Either, either dads are kind of forgotten or, or, or sometimes they're, they're accused of being too much. And, and sometimes as fathers, we struggle to understand how to navigate a very changing world today. Because the things that our grandfathers and our fathers did maybe just don't work in the world we live in now. But here's the good news, the things that our Heavenly Father has taught us will always work. They are universal. Remember this. Even if you're not a dad here today, and you might think, well, this isn't a dad sermon. <laughs> I'm not a dad, or I'm not a dad, so I don't need to pay attention to this sermon. The greatest man to ever live was never a father. And yet he left a legacy that continues in a powerful, powerful way even to today. We're going to talk a little bit about legacy. We're going to talk about four things this morning that I think fathers, in part, in a lot of ways, are neat or should in part. We're going to look at four different guys from the Bible. And I want you to know something about all four of these guys right up front. All four of these guys were very human. All four of these guys were prone to failure. And, you know, sometimes I, I think as, as dads and as husbands, we get this idea that we need to do this perfectly. We've got to, like, nail this the first time. And there's so little in life that actually we get right the first time. And certainly, parenthood isn't like that either. Our character really isn't like that. In fact, we grow to become the people that God has called us to be. And so as we look at these four characteristics, and we look at four guys that really embody these characteristics very well, I want you to recognize that each of these four guys were seriously flawed. But they allowed God to work through them. And each one of these four men have left a powerful enough legacy that though they have been gone thousands of years, their story and their accomplishments are still noteworthy. The first thing on that list of the four things that I think are important attributes, and this isn't just for fathers and husbands, this is really for all of us. The first thing on that list is that we live lives that are controlled. 
What I mean by that is that, that idea of self-control. The Bible talks a lot about that, talks about that being one of the fruits of the Spirit, that we are, we are controlled in ourselves. And, and the Bible uses a special word when it talks about control. In English, we would use the word control. The Bible uses the word meek. And, and the definition of meek has certainly changed. If you look that up in Webster's Dictionary, it gives a very accurate definition of meek. But a lot has changed in the last 350 years since Mr. Webster sat down and wrote his dictionary. And when you say to people today that we need to be meek, what they hear is a very different set of things. When we think of meekness, we sometimes think of weakness. We think of cowardice. We think of spiritlessness. If somebody's weak, then they just don't have any fire in their gut. They don't have any determination. They don't have any 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 snap to and do something about them. They're just kind of going with the flow. And guys, that is not what God means when he says that we need to be meek. Jesus Christ was a powerful example of meekness. I don't know if you've ever stopped to think about this, but imagine just, if you can with me this morning, that you are the creator of the universe. All right, mind blown, we're done, right? But imagine that you are. Imagine that you've sat by and watched as the Heavenly Father spoke into existence planets and, and terraformed the planets and created animals and created life on all its various levels. You were a part of that. The Bible tells us in John 1 that nothing that was created was not created, or was, was, was created without Jesus being there. Jesus was a part of all of that. Imagine, if you will, that, that you know that you have the power over the physical world. You've walked on water. You've raised the dead. You've healed illnesses that no doctor could find a solution for. Now imagine that you are standing in front of a hypocritical, arrogant, prideful, and dark soul like Annas or Caiaphas, the high priest. Or you're standing in front of Herod, the token king of the land, you're, you're, you're accosted by a young soldier who reaches out and grabs your beard and rips it out by the roots or shoves a crown of thorns into your brow or takes a whip and beats your back. And yet Jesus did nothing about that. Jesus wasn't weak. Jesus was meek. He was controlled. Every motion, every movement, every decision was thought through. And one of the great challenges of scripture is for us to become those kind of people you know jesus talked a lot about this idea of control or of meekness power under control is maybe a, a real good definite definition of what the meekness means in the greek in in matthew 5 and verse 5 it's really talked about a lot in the in in matthew the book of matthew jesus talks about in the beatitudes blessed are the meek right um again in matthew 11 and verse 28 he says that, that blessed are the gentle and lowly of heart matthew 21 again is a prophecy that jesus would come into the city of jerusalem lowly or meekly sitting on a donkey everything about jesus's life was was unassuming and I know sometimes in our culture today, as men, we're told that if you want to make a difference in the world, if you want to, if you want to make a legacy in this world, you've got to go out there and you kind of like grab life by the horns. You've got to demand people's attention. You've got to stake your claim. But Jesus came into this world with a very different attitude. And I would submit to you that his legacy trumps any other legacy that any other leader has ever left behind. Jesus came into this world with a radical service mentality. He was here to care for those who were not able to care for themselves. James, later on in the New Testament, says that we, do, we are to receive with meekness the implanted word. 
And, and, you know, as I grow older, I think that's one of the things that has changed the most about me. I used to know about the Bible, and I used to know and study the Bible. But now I recognize, as I grow older, how true the things in Scripture really are. When we do things the way God's called us to do things, there's just a radically different outcome than the way that Jason would normally pursue those things. And that's what James was saying, that that we need to receive with meekness. We need to say, okay, Lord, I understand my place, and I understand that you are wiser. Your information is deeper. Your power is broader. I will accept your information. Peter tells us to be always ready to give a defense of of the gospel. But then he says to do it with meekness and respect or gentleness and respect. That that we need to be people that have a command and an understanding of what it is that we believe about God. But when we approach people, we're not there to beat them up or to knock them down, but we're there to encourage them to see the word of God in our relationship with our Heavenly Father the way we do. Gentleness is one of the fruits of the Spirit. And in Colossians, the third chapter, the Apostle Paul commands us to put on meekness. So what is an example of meekness? It's a great question. Like, what does that look like in action? And maybe the person that we can look at to see this is a guy by the name of Moses. Now, Moses was was a guy that was kind of, his story was special from the very beginning. You guys know it, right? Floated in the Nile River, picked up by the Pharaoh's daughter, carried into the royal household, raised as one of the royals. And at 40 years of age, Moses goes out in the world, and he is a man of action. And he sees an Egyptian that's beating one of his native Hebrew people. And he goes up, and he strikes down, the Bible says, or kills that Egyptian, buries his body in the sand, and frees the Hebrew from the punishment that he's receiving. And in a lot of ways, I think that probably Moses returned that night to his bed, and he went to bed and he thought, you know what, I was right for that. I did what needed to be done. I'm a man of action. I'm going to make a difference for God in this world. But that wasn't the way God was going to have it played. And Moses found that out early in the morning because he went back out again. And here he sees two Hebrew guys arguing, and he goes up and he tries to make peace with them, and they said, what are you going to do? Are you going to kill us like you did that Egyptian yesterday? And then Moses knew the word was out, and soon his life was being sought, and he ran into the wilderness, and he spent the next 40 years in the wilderness as a hermit, as a shepherd, chasing sheep around the wilderness, until one day he sees a bush that's burning but doesn't burn up. He approaches that bush, and the Lord speaks to him and says, now it's time for you to return to Egypt. I would submit to you that of all the leaders in the Bible, with the exception of Jesus, that Moses may be one of the greatest. If Bible archaeologists are right, the population of the Israeli people at that point in time was well over one million people. Moses is not only going to free them out of the hand of the Egyptians, but he's going to lead them almost by himself, with the Lord obviously very present, through the Red Sea, into a wilderness that is absolutely devoid of any living thing, they will wander there because of their own choice for 40 years, and then he'll bring them up against the land of promise, although he himself will not go across. If you want to look at a guy that's a great leader, a powerful influencer, a man of action and decisiveness, Moses is your guy, but please don't mistake the fact that God didn't call Moses when he was 40 and thought that he was that guy. God called Moses at 80 
after he realized the value of meekness. In fact, it appears that Moses was so meek that even God made comment of it. There's a fascinating story that comes in the book of Numbers, the 12th chapter. Verse number 1, it says, Miriam and Aaron, and this would be Moses' older sister and brother. Um, Miriam is a worship leader for the people of Israel. Aaron is the high priest, okay? So these are both people that are connected here. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of a Cushite woman whom he had married, for he married a Cushite woman. So you guys might be wondering, what's wrong with Cushite women? Well, she was more than likely a black woman, and she was from Africa. And they didn't like that. Now, I don't know what, maybe they just didn't like her personality. I don't have a clue what the deal was right there. The Bible doesn't tell us. But they don't like his choice of wife. And so they're talking about Moses behind his back. And notice what they say in verse 2. And they said, has not the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not also spoken through us also? I mean, Miriam's like, well, I'm the worship leader. And the Lord speaks through worship. And Aaron's like, well, I'm the high priest. And obviously, I have a place of prominence as, as an intercessor between God's people and God, right? Notice what it says in the ending part of verse 2. And the Lord heard it. Now, the man Moses, a little footnote, was very meek, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. God made a little note right here so you would know something, that I would know something, and that we would learn something together this morning. Because here Moses has dealt with his two siblings who are gossiping about him, questioning his ability and his relationship with God. How is Moses going to deal with this? And it's interesting that the Bible records that Moses was the meekest man on the face of the earth. Think about this for just a moment with me this morning. This is a guy that's leading a million and a half people through the wilderness. A million and a half people that, if you know the story, can't quit complaining. I mean, for every moment, every turn, every day, complain, complaint, complaint, complaint. They complained that they're full. They complained if they're empty, they, if the water was good or if the water was bad. It didn't matter. They were humans just like us. And they complained. And yet, Moses is called by God a meek man. Here's why. In verse number four, it says, Suddenly the Lord said to Moses and Aaron and Miriam, Come over to the, tent, the three of you to the tent of meeting. And the three of them came out. So I don't have a whole lot of time this morning, but I, I should probably explain this to you because it's a little confusing if you've never read through this. There was a tent that was set up on the edge of the camp. And when God went to have a conversation with, with Moses, Moses would go into the tent of meeting and God and Moses would have a conversation. I don't know why they did that. That's just what God wanted. And so he's called the three of them now, not just Moses, but the three of them. He's called them over to this tent of meeting. So they're going to have a big powwow. If you're looking for a kind of a modern reference. This is when you get called to the principal's office, except the principal is God. Um, this is not good. Notice as the story says, and the three of them came, and the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud, and he stood at the entrance of the tent, and then he called out Aaron and Miriam. And they both came forward, and God said, hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in a dream. That's how God would often communicate with the prophets. They would see a vision. They would have a dream. Think of Daniel, right? Um, think of Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel. That, that's kind of how God dealt. But with, with Moses, things were different. Not so with my servant Moses in verse 7. He is faithful in all of my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly and not in riddles. And behold, he beholds the form of the Lord. Why were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? I want you to notice here really quickly what Moses did and didn't do. What Moses did 
was he was faithfully following God. What he didn't do was deal himself with that situation. He wasn't going to get bogged down in the petty, insignificant things of life because Moses recognized there was something more important for him to do. He was leading in the house of the Lord. And if you're a husband, if you're a dad here today, I know it can be so tempting for us all to get bogged down in petty and empty things. Don't let Satan rob your vision of what is really important. It's the spiritual things that are happening in your home. It's the spiritual things that are happening in your family and friend group. It's the spiritual things that are happening within the church family that are really important. And if Satan can, he'll try to distract us with back-talking and with people that are having a little dissent over here. And I want you just to notice that God deals with this very effectively. Now, most of the time, God doesn't call people out and, and give a defense of your character in front of you. Moses had a little bit of an advantage right here. But, but God does deal with it. Meekness allows God to do his job while we fully commit ourselves to our job, to recognize both our strengths and our limitations, our abilities and our weaknesses, and to allow the Spirit to make up for us in our weaknesses while pouring ourselves into those strengths that God has given us. So the first thing on that list is control, being people who are controlled, thinking through the decisions, the responses that we make in life, and not just flying or shooting from the hip, which is so fun to do. I love to shoot from the hip. I think most guys like to shoot, shoot from the hip. If you have my personality, you just want to do stuff. But very seldom does that actually work in life, right? And so, so one of the things that we learn from Moses is that we need to be people who are controlled. Secondly, we need to be people who are resilient. Resilience is kind of a lost art in our world today. That ability just to keep going in spite of little to no progress. And if you're a dad here this morning, I think probably most of us know exactly that feeling. You feel like you just get up in the morning and you go to work and then you come home and you fix the broken refrigerator and you tuck the kids in the bed and maybe you go to the ballpark for a few hours and then you vacuum the, the uh, goldfish crackers out from underneath the car seat and you go to bed and you get up in the morning and you do that same pattern again. Life just kind of forces us into some things and sometimes, sometimes it just begins to break us down. Not just dads, all of us. You know, there's a guy in the Old Testament that really gives us a powerful example of resilience as well. Like Moses, he was far from perfect, although we know very little about what maybe Noah did wrong. We do know that he was in a world that was extremely broken. In fact, so much so that it says in the, in the book of Genesis that God looked at the world and he said, I regret that I ever made men. The world is great, but the people are awful. And God said, you know what? I'm just going to clean this up, and we're going to start fresh. And it says this little phrase, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was different. And we don't know what all was different about Noah, but we know that he was different in character because God came to him, and he said, here's the deal, Noah. I'm about to destroy the world in the flood. Now, as we would understand it, there had not been rain in the world at that point. The Bible talks a little bit about that. Um, apparently things were just kind of watered from underneath. It sounds wonderful because um, I don't like rain. Um, but uh, there hadn't been rain in the world, certainly not a flood, and we don't think they were much in the seafaring business. So God comes to, to, comes to, Mo, uh, to Noah, excuse me, and he says, I want you to build this gigantic boat in the middle of the land because there's going to be this thing called a flood, and it's going to be caused by rain. None of these things make any sense to Noah. But what does he do? Starts building a boat. Starts putting this thing together. 
120 years, the Bible tells us, it took him to build this boat. And in that 120-year space of time, he's preaching. And then at the end of that 120 days, he gets onto the boat, and God sends two of every kind of animal and seven of some kinds of animals, and they load them all up on that boat. And then God shuts the door, and they sit there for seven days just waiting. Nothing. Not a thunderclap, not a raindrop, nothing. And then the floodgates let loose, and God's word was revealed. Noah teaches us the value of resilience. In fact, the Bible writer of Hebrews writes about him in Hebrews 11 chapter. He says, by faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness that is in keeping with faith. If you know a little bit about Hebrews, and especially Hebrews 11th and 12th chapters, the whole theme there is about by faith and how important faith is and the central kind of role that faith plays in the world. But I, I want you to notice what it says about him. It says, by faith, when he was warned about things not seen, and he didn't just like build it in a year or two, 120 years. This guy just keeps hammering pegs and cutting boards and assembling this thing that he was called to build because he believed that God was faithful and would do what he said he would. And as we know the story, God did. It's important to be resilient because sometimes the most important things are happening in ways that we can't see them. The important things are going to happen someday. We're preparing for those things right now. The third attribute that I think is important for all of us to, can, to have, and especially fathers to have, is the attribute of being willing to build, to be builders. And I know a lot of us probably are. We, we enjoy going out in a wood shop and cutting some boards and making something, or we, we enjoy tinkering with tools, or we, we maybe enjoy computers and programming and building programming. I think that's kind of built into a lot of us as guys. We enjoy building, but I'm not talking so, so much this morning about building dollhouses or real houses. I, I'm talking about building spiritual houses. A man by the name of Abram later to be called Abraham, was living in one of the greatest places one could live in the world. The name of the place was the Ur of the Chaldees. It was the kind of the, the swankiest of neighborhoods in the most developed part of the world at that time. And God comes to this man and he says to Abram, Abram, I want you to leave everything that you have here and I want you to go to a place that I'll show you. I want you to leave behind all your security. I want you to leave behind all your safety. I want you to leave behind all your finances. I want you to take you and your wife and leave your house behind and your family behind if they're not going to go with you. And I want you just to head off into the wild blue yonder. And the crazy thing about Abram is that he does it. He goes home and tells Sarah, Sarah, we're moving. Where to? I don't know. God's going to tell us. And she goes along, and, and they start making that trip, and they get stalled out partway, and God calls them again, and they finally make it down into what is now modern-day Israel, the promised land that the children of Israel were returning to, the land that God was going to give to his people. But the battle wasn't over. If you know the story of Abram, you know that there were a lot of struggles there. <laughs> they, they dealt with, with foreign incursion. 
They dealt with financial or with family problems, right? He and Lot had issues. There was sin in the world. Uh, The two cities down on the plain, Sodom and Gomorrah, legendary sinful places in the world. And you read through that story and you're like, you would agree. These were not good places to live. And yet Abram would become the builder, the father of a mighty nation of God's people. And he wasn't perfect in areas of faith. In fact, he was far from perfect. There were times where he would go into Egypt and other countries and people would see his wife, Sarah. Apparently, she was some kind of good looker because kings liked to, liked to, liked to try to pick her up. And, 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 and Abraham, because he was afraid, he would tell him, hey, that's my sister, which was kind of this weird half-truth thing. I'll explain that to you later if you want to know. Um, but, uh, but, but Abraham would say it was his sister and God would finally reveal to the, to the Pharaoh, no, that's not really his sister, that's his wife. But, Abraham was not that guy that was always there. There were a lot of things about Abraham that were broken. But one thing that Abraham had was that Abraham believed and followed God completely. No matter what it was, Abraham was going to do it. You know, dads, there's a temptation for us to put our family ahead of God. It can be so easy sometimes to want to capitulate our understanding of the moral convictions of Scripture or of what's right and wrong and change those beliefs because they're not working for our kids at that time or we're afraid that we might strain or alienate them. One of the things that I appreciate about Abram was that he understood this. He was willing to give anything for that son. Eventually, they didn't have any children way into their elderly years, 90 and 100 years old. In fact, when Sarah heard that she was to be a mom, she thought it was so ridiculous, she laughed. But a year later, she wasn't laughing because she is the mother of a bouncing baby boy. And the world was around this kid, right? They loved Isaac. He was, he was the son of promise. And yet one day, one day, God came to him, to Abraham, and he said, Abraham, Genesis 22. He said, take your son, your only son, yes, Isaac, whom you love so much, and go to the land of Moriah. Go and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I will show you. Now, if you've never read this story before, please know that God has no intention on letting Abraham do any harm to this boy. But what God wants to illustrate through the life of Abraham is this simple truth, and that is if we want to build a spiritual legacy, there can only be one person at the top. That has to be God. Abraham loved Isaac. In fact, they would do the right thing early in the morning. They get up and they head to Moriah, right? Several day journey. They get to the the base of the mountain and Abraham leaves all the servants and everyone behind. He says, Isaac, let's get the wood and get the fire and let's get up there. He has everything he needs. About partway up that mountain, Isaac's looking around. He's thinking, my dad's old. I mean, 115, something like that at the time, whatever, you know. Who would, who would fault the man for forgetting that we are going to offer a sacrifice, but we don't have one? And so he says, Dad, uh, we have the fire and we have the wood, uh, but where's the sacrifice? And Abraham says something that is probably one of the most profound statements in the Bible. He says to Isaac, the Lord himself will provide a sacrifice. And it's true, and in a few moments' time, they will find there, caught in the, in the, in the bushes there by, the, by its horns, a, a, a ram, and they'll offer that as a sacrifice, and they'll come down together. But Abraham had no way of knowing that God was actually going to provide a sacrifice. 
that was his son. You see, God never asks us to do something that he isn't willing to do himself. And sometimes as fathers, I know that we are asked to do hard things. I understand that. Sometimes as fathers, we think, I don't really want to do that. I don't want to be a part of that. But here's the truth, church. When God asks us to do it, we need to do it. God didn't make Abram give his son as a sacrifice, but God willingly chose to allow Jesus to be all of our sacrifices. Abraham was willing to put God number one in his life, even ahead of his children. And all of us today, if you have family, if you have children, it's a valuable and important lesson for us to keep in our mind. God must always come first. The greatest gift that we can give our children is a legacy of service to God first. Last of these four things is that God calls us to be people who are invested. Not just interested. It can be easy to be interested in church and in spiritual matters. It can be kind of easy to, to even be even to be a supportive of those kinds of things. And a lot of us as guys are like that, right? We're we're not going to push against that. We know it's important. We're going to go with our family to church every day. We're going to support our kids as they might be want to go do different kinds of events. We're we're not against it. But I want to ask you this morning, if you're a dad here, really if you're an adult believer here today, anybody here today, are you really invested? Because investment is very different than just interest. See, God is invested in our salvation because he, he gave His only Son to be our Savior. He has paid a price that is unbelievable so that we have this opportunity. But God wants to know, are we willing to invest ourselves? Two of the most noted Old Testament characters really kind of point out the difference between investment and not investing. The very first king of Israel, even though Samuel was against it, was a man by the name of Saul. And Saul had a lot of things right. (laughs) Saul was head and shoulders taller than everyone else. He apparently was a pretty good-looking guy. And for a while, he was a good leader. But Saul had a couple weaknesses in character. Saul was a little impatient, and he offered a sacrifice one day when he should have waited. God, uh, Saul dealt with a little bit of fear, and Saul was a little greedy. He took a city. God said, I want you to destroy everything in it. I want it to be a, to, to be a sacrifice to me. And, and, and Saul saw some stuff, and he's like, ah, we've got to take some of this. We're going we're gonna to bring this back home. We're going to have sacrifices in Jerusalem. And he brought the king along. He, he wanted to kind of have a little trophy, you know, and, and show everybody, look, I'm greater than this other guy right here, right? And, and, and the prophet of God came, and God said, you know what? I'm done with this guy. I am finished with him. I don't want any more to do with him. Go and find a new king. And so they found a new king, the youngest boy of Jesse, so insignificant, in fact, that they didn't even bring him in, even though the prophet of God was coming to the house to anoint the next king of Israel. They didn't even bother to bring little David into the house because who would even want, and I didn't even worry about him. He's a shepherd. He was the last in the line. And in those days where the oldest son kind of ran the show, the youngest son really was nothing. Yet that's the person that God chose. In fact, in the New Testament, in Acts the 13th chapter, the apostle Paul is preaching a sermon in Antioch And he references a statement about David that that was spoken by God. God said this in Acts 13, verse 22. 
And, and Saul, of course, is, or Paul rather, is quoting an Old Testament text. He said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all of my will. Now, I'm just going to be straight up with you this morning because our time has come and gone. If you're wanting to do like a debits and credit sheet on Saul and David, Saul is a way better guy than David. As far as I know, besides chasing David around in the wilderness for a few years, Saul was, was, was not that bad of a guy compared to David. I mean, David got bored one day when he should have been at war and he wasn't at war and ended up having an affair with one of his best friends and most loyal, faithful fighters who was fighting a war with his wife right next door. And then in order to cover it up, he brings his friend home, hoping that he'll go home and, and have natural relations with his wife. But his, his friend, is too, his, his soldier, is too loyal, sleeps on the steps of the, of the palace, and then the next day carries his own death sentence back to the battlefront because David knew his character. He knew he would never open that paper and read what was written instead, inside. And what was written was, let him get in the worst part of the battle, everyone backs off, let him kill him. And that's exactly what they did because the king said, David maybe didn't take his life with his own hands, but he took his life. He was guilty of murder. Not only that, but... David would later on, in full knowledge that God was against it, number the people. Even though his own commander, who was not a very godly guy, would say, David, do not do this. David said, I want to know. And it was a terrible plague and thousands of people died. When you want to look at good and bad in our viewpoint, David's a really bad dude and Saul's just kind of normal, average guy. And yet God says, David's a guy after my own heart. What was the difference with this guy? Maybe the best place to see the difference in David is the little speech that he has when he's talking with Saul. As a young man who's come to the battlefront and witnessed Goliath. If you're in Sunday school, you know that story, right? Goliath comes out, fee fi fo fum uh, my God's greater than yours, send me out a champion, we'll fight it out. No sense, we have a big battle right here. And and, and every day this would happen for 40 days, and every day the children of Israel ran the other direction, and, and, and Goliath's like, Whoo! and he goes back to his camp, and they go back to their camp, and the next morning this whole charade starts again. Goliath comes out, fee fi fo fum nine-foot-tall guy. I don't blame any of them for not wanting to fight him. David hears this, though, and he's like, we need to do something about this. We need to take this guy out. And, and eventually Saul hears about it, and Saul says, what makes you think that you can deal with Goliath? That guy's been fighting since he was a kid, and you're a shepherd. I love David's response. Never forget this, young people. You guys, if you've been in my classes, you've heard me preach this a thousand times. I think this is what really gets God excited. Because David said, well, you know, I'm a shepherd. I'm sure Saul's like, hmm. He said, and when a lion or a bear would attack my father's flock and take a lamb, I would go after him. And would grab him by the mane. For those of you who don't know, that's the furry thing around the big, sharp, chompy parts of the lion and bear. And if he didn't let go or he turned and attacked me, I would strike him now with my own hands. This is a pretty bad dude. This is a kid out watching sheep that they didn't even bother to bring into the house. And he will take on a lion with his bare hands, right? This is serious. But this is the thing. David realized that he wasn't functioning in this world alone. He said, the same God who gave me 
victory over those lions and those bears will give me a victory against Goliath as well. David knew the value of being invested. He wasn't out there trying to do it on his own. That's what Saul was trying to do. That's what some of us are trying to do today, if we're honest. We're trying to figure this out on our own, source this out on our own, have skills or, or personality to do this on our own. David wasn't that foolish. Even from a young age, he recognized that I'm going with God, and when I'm with God, I can do the impossible. He was willing to throw all in so much that he was willing to go out and face a nine-foot-plus giant on the battlefield in an obvious duel to the death for one of them. Saul tries to give him armor. He said, I can't wear this. I'm not comfortable with it. Just give me my shepherd's bag and a slingshot. <laughs> he scoops and picks up three smooth stones, but he'll only need one because he's invested in something that God is. Dads, as I close today, I just want to ask you, are you investing in the things that God wants you to invest in? Are you investing in the things that God is invested in? Because there's a lot of great men that are a part of this church. There's a lot of great dads that are a part of this church. But we can be great people and not focused on what it is that, that God would want us to be focused on. David would write this in Psalm 16. He said, I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. And apart from you, I have nothing good. I have no good thing. For David, there was one relationship that was supremely important to him. And that was a relationship that he had with the Heavenly Father. As we close this morning, I, I want to read a letter to you guys. It was written by a person that maybe some of you have only heard about. Some of you maybe remember. He was governor of California. And he would ultimately become the president of the United States when I was a young kid. His name was Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan had a father-in-law by the name of Loyal, and Loyal was a famous neurosurgeon. He pioneered several processes, but he was also a famous atheist. And Loyal had grown old, and his health was failing. And Ronald Reagan's journal diary, somewhere in the middle of August of 1981 or 82, he makes a note of things to do on Saturday. Kind of funny, like if you're president, you have a to-do list, right? So he writes in here, things I got to do today. And he had several big, important items of state that needed to be attended to. And then he said, and I must write that letter to Loyal. And he would later say that it had just been burdening his conscience that he needed to write a letter to his father-in-law about the most important thing to him. And as I close this morning, I just want to share this letter with you. August 7th. 1982, Dear Loyal, I hope you forgive me for this, but I have been wanting to write you ever since we talked on the phone. I am aware of the strain that you're under, and I believe with all of my heart that there is help for that. First, I want to tell you of a personal experience that I have kept to myself for a long time. During my first year of governor, you'll recall the situation I found in California was almost as bad as the one in Washington today. And it seemed like the problems were endless and insolvable. And there I found myself with an ulcer. In all those years with Warner Brothers, no one had been able to give me an ulcer. And I felt ashamed as if it were a sign of weakness on my part. John Sharp, 
that's his doctor, because he doesn't really reference that here, because he's not writing that letter to, to us. He's writing it to his father-in-law. John Sharp had me on Maalox. Some of you back in the day remember Maalox. That's before the new medicines came along. And I lived with a constant pain that ranged from discomfort to extremely sharp attacks. This went on for months, and I, I had a bottle of Maalox in my desk, one in my briefcase, and of course at home. And then one morning I got up, I went into the bathroom, I reached for the bottle as always, and something happened. I knew I didn't need it. I'd gone to bed with the same pain the night before, but I knew that morning I was healed. The Maalox went back on the shelf. That morning when I arrived at the office, Helen brought me my mail, and the first letter I opened was from a lady, a stranger, in the southern part of the state, and she had written to tell me that she was a part of a group who met, to, who met every uh, day to pray for me, and believe it or not, the second letter was from a man, again a stranger, in the other end of the state, telling me that he was a part of a weekly group that met to pray for me. Within an hour, a young fellow from the legal staff came into my office with some routine matter. On the way out the door, he paused and he said, Hey, Gov, I, I think maybe you would like to know that some of us on staff come in early every morning to get together to pray for you. Coincidence? I don't think so. A couple weeks later, Nancy and I went down to L.A. and I had my annual checkup. John Sharp was a little puzzled and told me that I no longer had an ulcer, but he also added there was no indication I had ever had one. Word of honor, I never told him about that particular day in Sacramento. That's the capital. There is this line in the Bible, where two or more are gathered in my name, there I will be also. Loyal, I know of your feeling your doubt, but could I just impose on you a little longer? Some 700 years before the birth of Christ, the ancient Jewish prophets predicted the coming of a Messiah. They said he would be born in a lowly place, that he would proclaim himself the Son of God, that he would be put to death for saying that. And in all, there were a total of 127 or 23 specific prophecies about his life, all of which came true. Crucifixion was unknown in those times, and yet it was foretold that he would be nailed to a cross of wood, and one of the predictions would be that he would be born of a virgin. Now, I know that's probably the hardest for you to accept as a doctor. The only answer that can be given is a miracle. But, Loyal, I didn't find that as great as the miracle, as great of a miracle as the actual history of his life. Either he was who he said he was, or he was the greatest faker and charlatan who ever lived. But would a liar or a faker suffer the death that he did when all he had to do to save himself was admit that he had been lying? The miracle is that that young man of 30 years without credentials as a scholar or a priest began preaching on street corners. He owned nothing but the clothes on his back. He didn't travel in the, beyond a circle of 100 miles across he did this for only three years, and he was executed as a common criminal. But for 2,000 years, he has had more impact in the world than all the teachers, all the scientists, all the emperors, all the generals, and all the admirals who had ever lived, all put together. The Apostle John said, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believed in him would not perish but would have everlasting life. We've all been promised that what we have to do is ask God in Jesus' name to help us when we have done all we can. When we have come to the end of our strength and our abilities, we will have that help. 
We have to trust and have faith in His infinite goodness and mercy. Loyal, you and Edith have known a great love. More than many that have been permitted to know, that love need not end with this life. You've been promised that this is only a part of life, and the greater life, a joy, awaits us. It awaits you together. One day, all is required for you is to believe and put God, or put yourself in God's hands. It was signed at the end, love, Ronnie. That was his name to his family. I know today as a lot of us as fathers and as leaders feel that same pressure that Ronald Reagan felt. Certainly not to that extent. We're not leading the nation, but we're trying to lead our families. And it's overwhelming. The challenges that we see in our world today are to an observed eye big. We know that there's so many different voices speaking into our families and into the hearts of our children, into the minds of our, of our loved ones. And sometimes it can be simply overwhelming. But I want you to know something today. That we are not alone. Just as David had God with him on the battlefield. Just as Abraham followed God in building a great nation. Just as Noah was equipped with, by God with the information to build a giant ark, just like Moses was empowered by God to be a great leader, we too follow and serve the same Heavenly Father. The challenge is real. And more than ever, the world needs to see godly examples of fatherhood. The great news is that we can follow the best father we can learn from the one who created it all. He's called us to become like his son, like himself. And my prayer is that even if we messed it up, all those guys did, that from today, we strive to become more like our heavenly father each and every day. Church family, we're going to stand together and we're going to sing. If you have a need, you know you can come. If you need to talk with one of us after church, drag us, catch us at the door. Don't leave here today if you have a need. Let's sing to